I want to talk today about the efficient markets hypothesis. Uh, and uh, uh, let me just first say, uh, last lecture was about insurance. Uh, and I was telling you about uh, the theory of insurance and how it's evolved over the years uh, and how it's produced some real benefits. Uh, Um, is that better? Is, it says mic volume. Did that go up? Okay. So um, I wanted to just uh, tie this in uh, the advantages of insurance that we have to some big events that occurred, uh, and that will, I think, uh, point out the strengths and weaknesses of our institutions. So we had a terrible hurricane a couple of years ago in. Los Angeles. Uh, Hurricane Katrina uh, damaged uh, the city of. I'm sorry, did I say Los Angeles? <laughs> you have to stop me when I say things that are uh, obviously wrong. Uh, my mind lapses sometimes. New Orleans. Uh, and Los Angeles doesn't have to worry about hurricanes, as far as I know, unless there's some major change. Uh, in New Orleans, uh, there was a, a, a Hurricane Katrina. Uh, it uh, broke the uh, levees that were surrounding the city and caused the flooding of the city. Uh, and uh, what, what saved the people of the city, mostly? I would say it's actually the insurance institutions, because uh, the city was heavily damaged, but homes were generally insured. Uh, there was some conflicts that happened when this huge disaster came. Some people had wind insurance. And some people had flood insurance, uh, and uh, it would became, became difficult whether this was a wind or a flood problem, right? Because the wind caused the flood. So if you had only wind insurance, are you uh, covered? So there was a lot of bickering and arguments afterwards, but I think it worked out well. There, uh, mm -hmm. there, there were surveys of a customer satisfaction uh, after the uh, event. And I think generally people were happy with their insurance companies. Of course, there were some that were not, who may have found out that they weren't covered. But uh, uh, on the whole, the experience worked well. So uh, th the other thing I wanted to say about the last lecture is that um, as, as financial progress moves on, the distinction between insurance and other forms of risk management may get blurred. And one very interesting thing that's been happening is that uh, we are starting to see development of uh, another institution called a catastrophe bond, which is a, uh, another way that people have of protecting themselves against catastrophes. And it's not insurance. So a catastrophe bond is a bond that the issuer doesn't have to pay off if there's a catastrophe. All right, So you can have hurricane. The city of New Orleans could raise money with catastrophe bonds uh, that uh, uh, they have to pay back if there's no hurricane, but uh, they don't have to pay back if there is a hurricane. Uh, or it could be some mixture. They'd pay back part of it if there is a hurricane. That, that's like insurance, isn't it? But it doesn't operate through an insurance company. Uh, it operates through the securities market. So uh, a good example of that is a couple of years ago, the government of Mexico 
issued catastrophe bonds against earthquakes. Uh, Mexico City was hit by a, a terrible earthquake about uh, 20 years ago, uh, and it's vulnerable to being hit again. So what does Mexico do about this? Mexico could wait until there is a hurricane and hope that there's some international relief effort, uh, but you know that's not a very good way to proceed. We want to arrange it in advance. So uh, what Mexico did is issue cat bonds uh, that uh, have to be repaid in the absence of a hurricane and have a lower repayment if there is. I'm sorry, hurricane. I'm not in my best uh, form today. Earthquake. Mexico City does not have to worry about hurricanes either. Every area is different, and they have their own um, their own uh, individual uh, characteristics. So right now, the insurance industry is a, a bit challenged uh, because, in terms of some risks, because the risks seem to be changing through time, uh, and notably, uh, it looks like hurricane risk is increasing. Uh, and so, people who are insured in it, it seems to be increasing because of global warming, although I don't know if all scientists are agreed on that. But if you live in a coastal area of Florida, it does appear that your risk is increasing through time. So insurance companies want to raise your rates. Uh, and this is a huge issue down in Florida. Well, the government has kind of taken over uh, for the time being uh, insurance uh, in Florida because uh, we, we have problems. Uh, People are having problems paying the increased insurance premium. Uh, so um, I don't think we've figured out finally how uh, uh, insurance will ultimately look in a matter of years. But I think that the important thing is that it's protecting us against already, maybe imperfectly, but it's already protecting us against some of our worst fears, uh, like hurricanes and earthquakes. Uh, and that I think the system is evolving, and we're getting new developments like like cat bonds that are changing the way we're doing things. And in the future, I think these will develop more and, and make us uh, even better able to handle uh, uh, catastrophe risks. Anyway, that's the last lecture. Uh, today, I wanted to talk about back to uh, securities markets, or actually more general asset markets. And I want to talk today about the efficient markets hypothesis, uh, which is uh, a very important intellectual construct uh, that uh, has guided a lot of uh, a lot of theory in finance. Uh, I want to talk first about the history of the hypothesis. I haven't defined it yet for you, but maybe you already have heard of this. But uh, history of the hypothesis and the arguments for it, uh, and then the arguments against it. And I want to talk about uh, technical analysis and uh, empirical evidence in the literature about technical analysis uh, and other, uh, uh, other uh, schools of thought that doubt of market efficiency. Talk somewhat about behavioral economics. Um, and then finally, we have a homework assignment. Actually, it's coming up. I'll start talking about it now, so you, uh, uh, it would be an assignment for you to try to forecast the stock market using statistical methods. So uh, you don't have to look at the screen yet. <laughs> it just blinked off. I'll come back to that. Uh, so the, uh, what is the efficient markets hypothesis? Uh, the term actually 
is uh, of fairly recent uh, origin. Uh, that is um, a few decades ago. But the idea goes back much further. Uh, the idea is that in, in asset markets that have uh, good uh, uh, <laughs> that have good uh, 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 regulations and uh, uh, market makers and developed markets that have uh, a lot of um, depth and liquidity, in these markets, the prices that you see are perfect indicators of true value. In other words, efficient markets says that the market efficiently incorporates all information and the prices are uh, like the best information uh, about the value of something. In other words, efficient markets hypothesis tells you trust markets. Don't trust people, <laughs> trust markets. Uh, so uh, I've been trying to find out who said that first. Uh, and uh, the earliest uh, statement of the efficient markets hypothesis, although it doesn't call it the efficient markets hypothesis, uh, the earliest statement that I could find comes from a book uh, written in 1889 uh, by George Gibson. Uh, and it's called uh, The Stock Exchanges of London, Paris, and New York. Uh, and uh, I'll quote him. Uh, he said, When shares become publicly known in an open market, the value which they acquire there may be regarded as the judgment of the best intelligence concerning them. So uh, I was kind of interested to see this book. I found it in the Mudd Library, actually, by accident looking through old uh, stock market books. Uh, and uh, the, um, the book had some uh, interesting observations. What one observation which took my interest was that uh, he points out that in this modern electronic age, uh, information speeds around the globe at the speed of electricity uh, or the speed of light. Uh, when I, I, when I first read that, I thought from it, wait a minute, 1889? That sounds like 1989 or something. Are we going to uh, interrupt the. Uh huh. Just a moment. We found the microphone. <laughs> Why didn't one of you. Did, it was right there? <laughs> Sorry about that. There you go. Now I'm freed from my, uh, <laughs> from my tether. Um, in 1889, uh, they had already invented the telegraph. In fact, that goes back decades earlier. Uh, and the telephone was, was starting to appear. And so it really was true that um, information would speed around the globe. Uh, and so information that became publicly known would be uh, entered into market price almost immediately. And so the conclusion that Gibson had was that uh, uh, there's no uh, there's th th there's no hope in trying to uh, beat the price or, or 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 beat the market because the price already has all of the information in it. it, it let me elaborate on that theme a little bit. Actually, it goes back before telegraph. There was a famous story of uh, Mr. Reuters who had a information service uh, before the telegraph was invented, 
uh, and he uh, wanted to help his clients uh, get the information first so that they could trade on it. Uh, and he had the idea of using uh, what you call um, carrier pigeons. Uh, this is what you do is you get these birds and you raise them. You know what I'm talking about, right? You raise them in one place, and then they're going to want to go back there. So then you take them away in a cage to another city. And when you need to get a message across, you tie the message to the pigeon's foot and release it, and then it will fly back. And it will beat any other method of, uh, of, of message transmission. Uh, so Reuter, incidentally, Reuters Information Service is still in business today. Uh, and now they use uh, computers <laughs> the way everyone else does. But the whole, the whole principle precedes the invention of computers. Uh, the idea is that the only way you can beat the market is to get information that nobody else has. And the way it works today is that uh, uh, the it, we can't actually improve on the speed from 1889, right? Because they were already going at virtually the speed of light with their information. But we can improve on the uh, our access to it. So now uh, many people have beepers or uh, you know something like this in their pocket <laughs> that wakes up and tells them when news is announced. So what happens when there's news about a stock? So let's uh, say it's a drug company that just makes an announcement that it has a new drug. Let's say good news, uh, it, or it has gotten FDA approval to market some new drug. Uh, well, it would put that out um, over uh, over the uh, network of information, and uh, some people would have their, their things beep on them and alert them immediately. There are analysts who try to keep up with uh, news about stocks, and so uh, these analysts then uh, would jump to action when they hear this news like that. That's because they know that markets move really fast information uh, to uh, important new information, uh, and they've got to be there first. So what happens when the drug company announces that they have some News, important news. Well, the guys who are with their beepers immediately spring to action and try to figure out what the news is. And within seconds, they're trading. Because you know, you've got to be there first. Uh, otherwise, you, don't, you can't benefit from the news. So what happens? They, they say they've announced, the, they've got approval for this new drug. And then they do maybe, maybe do a quick call to their drug company expert and say, quick, how much should I change the valuation of this stock? Uh, and the guy will give a quick guess, you know, 20, this is now 20 seconds after the announcement. Uh, and then immediately you place a big trade for a million shares or plus or minus. Uh, and then the guy calls back 30 seconds later and says, Oh, no, you know, I wasn't exactly right on that. I've had 30 more seconds to think about this. So let me change it again. Uh, so over the next few minutes, the price, a lot of people are trading like that. So the price is jumping around rapidly. Uh, then after maybe five minutes, these people have had time to assimilate it and think about it and check their thinking, and the price starts to settle down. Maybe I'm exaggerating how fast it settles down. Maybe an hour later, you have a committee meeting, and the experts are arguing about, uh, about what this really means and trying to uh, assimilate other information and coordinate with it. But after two hours, it's starting to really settle down. So suppose you then, the next day, read in the Wall Street Journal about this uh, new announcement. Do you think you have any chance of beating the market by trading on it? I mean, you're like 24 hours late. But I hear people tell me, I hear, you know, I read in Business Week that there's a new announcement, so I'm thinking of buying. And I say, well, Business Week, you know, that, that information is probably a week old. 
even other people will talk about trading on information that's years old. Uh, and so you kind of think that maybe these people are, are naive. You know, first of all, you're not a drug company expert or whatever it is that's needed. Uh, secondly, you, you don't know the math. <laughs> you don't know how to calculate present values, probably. And then, uh, and then thirdly, you're a month late. Uh, and so uh, you get the impression that a lot of people shouldn't be trying to uh, beat the market. Uh, and that uh, t you might say to a first approximation, the market has it all right. And so uh, don't even try. Uh, so the efficient markets hypothesis is a, a hypothesis that one should respect financial markets uh, very much. So your textbook uh, by uh, Fabozzi et al. Uh, mentions, I, I looked it up in the index to see what they say about efficient markets hypothesis. They define it. Uh, I'm quoting the textbook, Fabozzi, uh, publicly available relevant information about the issuers will lead to correct pricing of freely traded securities in properly functioning markets. That's their definition of the efficient markets hypothesis. Um, they didn't say it was right. They just said <laughs> that's the hypothesis. What Fabozzi et al. said is that the, um, the hypothesis has informed a lot of regulation. The Securities and Exchange Commission and other agencies that regulate financial markets uh, have shown some faith in the efficient markets hypothesis. And therefore, they feel that they're, um, they're maybe their primary mission is to regulate the flow of information, to make sure that it's an even playing field so that everyone has access to information at the same time. Uh, so, for example, the Securities and Exchange Commission requires that when a corporation publishes information that's relevant to the value of their stock, they have to put it out uh, to everyone at once. Uh, well, there's rules about what that means. But typically, they'll have a, a webcast or something like that, and it's announced in advance so everyone who is really interested can, can listen in. Uh, but I, I don't find uh, a whole lot of enthusiasm in, in the Fabozzi book for the efficient markets hypothesis. And maybe that's because it's not exactly right, which is my view. It's a half truth, and I'll come back to that. I wanted to quote another uh, best selling textbook, not your own. Uh, but there's another textbook, uh, Breeley and Myers, uh, which is a textbook uh, of corporate finance. Uh, and they are much more enthusiastic about efficient markets hypothesis. At the end of their textbook, they have a concluding chapter. Uh, and the concluding chapter is built around what they call the seven most important ideas in finance. And one of those seven ideas to them is efficient markets. Uh, and uh, they don't call it a hypothesis. <laughs> they just say efficient markets, which they define as the, uh, the theory that I'm quoting them security prices accurately reflect available information and respond rapidly to new information as soon as it becomes available. Uh, then they have a little qualifier. I think this is interesting. They say, don't misunderstand the efficient market idea. It doesn't say that there are no taxes or costs. It doesn't say that there aren't some clever people and some stupid ones. It merely implies that competition in capital markets is very tough. There are no money machines, and security prices reflect the true underlying value of assets. Uh, 
Well, that's, uh, that's a pretty enthusiastic endorsement of efficient markets. Uh, I said I have some doubts about it. I guess I, I, uh, uh, I don't I guess what I don't like is their concluding statement. Security prices reflect the true underlying value of assets. I don't think that's uh, uh, really true. Uh, but I guess I agree, it's tough to make money reliably and quickly <laughs> in financial markets. And so if that's what efficient markets means, uh, they're right. Um, so, um, but you know, efficient markets is not uh, so easy to define. Uh, there, uh, we can go back to um, in uh, the term really goes back to 1967, and it was Professor Harry Roberts at University of Chicago who defined three different efficient markets hypothesis. Uh, there's the weak form, the semi-strong form. And then the strong form. Uh, the weak form, uh, it, it, these differ only in terms of the amount of information that is assumed to be efficiently incorporated into prices. The weak form says that info of past prices is already in the incorporated into price. So. Uh, uh, but, but only past prices. It, what it means only is that you can't predict stock prices by noting that, say, if it goes up today, it'll probably go up tomorrow, or if it goes up today, it'll probably go down tomorrow. That would be relying only on past prices. And so Harry Roberts felt most confident that this uh, form of the hypothesis was, was, uh, was good. So he called it the weak form. It's the least criticizable form of efficient markets. Semi-strong form says that market prices incorporate all public info information. Anything that's known to the public is uh, already incorporated into the price, so don't bother to trade on it. The strong form says all information, whether public or not, is incorporated into price. This is a really uh, strong, it's the least likely to be true because every time you increase the information set, what strong form says is that no information uh, is private, really. It all gets out into price. Uh, companies keep secrets, and so that's not public information. The Securities and Exchange Commission insists that companies keep secrets because they, they have to disseminate information in an orderly way, and so there has to be a secret until a certain uh, hour in which it's announced to everybody. But the strong form efficient markets <laughs> hypothesis is cynical about that and says, you know, nobody keeps secrets. It all leaks out. Uh, I think that when we refer to the efficient markets hypothesis, it's the semi-strong form that we're usually referring to because the strong form is a bit, uh, a bit strong. <laughs> and, um, okay. So, um, the definitions of efficient markets that I gave you uh, are intuitive but not very precise because then you have to ask, well, what does it mean to say that uh, price incorporates all information? Uh, what does it mean to incorporate information? Uh, so uh, unfortunately, there's not one answer to that question. Uh, and so I, I'm going to give the simplest answer. Uh, 
what does efficient markets mean? Uh, and uh, I might, I'll have to. Uh, this is the simplest version, but it's often the one that's uh, often the one that is referred to most. And that is that price is the expected value, the expected present value of future dividends paid on the stock. Okay, uh, and so uh, the, uh, the the efficient markets hypothesis says the true value of a stock comes from the dividends that it pays. That's a cash flow that is valued by the market, and the market values it. As the present value of the optimally forecasted future dividend. Okay, so uh, and the the theory that's most often referred to is the simple. Uh, I, I've already talked in the second lecture about present value formulas. We had a growing perpetuity model. Uh, remember that I, I said that the the present value, uh, the present discounted value. Of a growing perpetuity that pays uh, an amount d. Uh, well, if it pays, if the payant is d times e to the g t, um, or d sub zero e to the g t is the dividend. So it's growing at rate lowercase g there. Then the, the formula we had for the present value was d over r minus g. Remember that, um, and uh, this assumes, of course, that the growth rate of dividends has to be less than the discount rate R. So, the uh, simplest version of the efficient markets hypothesis says price is equal to the dividend all over the in, in the discount rate minus the growth rate of dividends, where G, the growth rate of dividends, is. Uh, is an optimally forecasted growth rate of dividends, and so that gives us a, uh, a value, a model for the uh, uh, price. Uh, another way of writing more generally is if I don't assume the constant growth rate of dividends, is to write just a present value formula. It's another uh, less strong form of uh, writing down the efficient markets hypothesis because it doesn't say. How dividends are thought to grow, but you can write the price is equal to the summation of the expectation at time t of dividends at time t plus k all over one plus r to the kth power k equals one to infinity. This is another incarnate. That's just the present value formula. I have. The price. Um, sorry, this should be the expectation at yeah time t. The price at time t is the expectation of the dividend at time t plus k, discounted by uh, a discount factor r, uh, and that's just the present value formula where I've substituted an expectation uh, for the future dividend. So. Um, uh, that's the efficient markets theory in this incarnation. Now, there's other ways to uh, en envision the efficient markets, what, what it means, but let's consider this simple story. 
What this means then is that uh, the uh, price um, is a forecast of future dividends to be paid on the stock. This, uh, this would be uh, of the present value of future dividends to be paid on the stock. And this means then that uh, price uh, relative to dividend uh, is uh, related to expected future growth rates of dividends. If you expect dividends to grow a lot, if, if G is high, then price will be high relative to dividend because this is subtracted off the denominator. It makes the denominator smaller and it makes the price higher. Uh, on the other hand, if you expect dividends to do poorly in the future, then price will be low relative to dividends. That's what the efficient markets hypothesis would say. Uh, and so, uh, uh, I would give you an example of that. Um, I, I talked last year about a company that I read in Business Week, uh, read about in Business Week. Uh, so this is a year-old story in Business Week. Uh, th there was a company called First Fed Financial, which was uh, a company that issues mortgages. Uh, and already, this was in January of 2007. Actually, the Business Week story was in December of 2006, but I was still reacting to it in a year ago, in January of 2007. Uh, and so, uh, uh, the uh, Business Week story, this is First Fed Financial. Uh, was referring to the fact that uh, the price uh, dividend ratio, actually, they talked about price earnings ratio, but the, the, the price earnings ratio for this company uh, was very low. It was only 8.5 in, um, in, uh, in December 2006. That's 8.5. And write that very clearly. Typically, price earnings ratios of companies are very high, uh, much higher than that, typically like 15. So uh, the, the price of First Fed Financial relative to its earnings was very low. And so some people might be inclined to think, well, that looks cheap. I can buy, by buying First Fed Financial, I can buy uh, the stock at a low price relative to its uh, earnings. Uh, but if you believe in efficient markets, uh, you wouldn't think that this is uh, any reason to buy the company. Because efficient markets would say that if the price is low relative to either dividends or earnings, it must mean that people think that bad things are going to come. To the dividends or earnings. In other words, the uh, first Fed financial has a, a low expected growth rate of, of dividends in the future. Uh, and so I was interested in this particular story because Business Week wrote an article about them uh, and noted the low price earnings ratio uh, and said, uh, What does this mean? Uh, uh, and what, what Business Week presented a year ago was an argument. Why G was likely to be low? Yes. How would the uh, efficient market um, theory predict prices in the stock of which they're acting as on probably the investment right now? Yes. If they don't pay dividends, you can't use this formula. Uh, and I'm not sure what the dividends were of First Fed Financial. I, I only know the price-earnings ratio uh, at that time. 
But you're, you're right. You cannot use this formula if they're not paying a dividend today because uh, the, uh, um, this formula, I erased it, but it was up here, <laughs> assumes that dividends are following a growth path. And, you're, and if they're not paying a dividend, then that we, we're very clearly, that's not an appropriate assumption. Yeah. Right. So for Berkshire, incidentally, if you know Berkshire Hathaway is the company that Warren Buffett uh, owns, and it's it's a very famous company because it's done extremely well, <laughs> and Warren Buffett is regarded as by many people as a financial genius. Um, but if Berkshire Hathaway is not paying a dividend, we have to revert to this formula. So the efficient market theory would say, well, they're going to pay a dividend eventually, and so the price reflects. Uh, these future terms, if you spell this out, this is uh, the expected dividend next year plus the dividend in two years divided by 1 plus r squared plus the expected dividend in three years divided by 1 plus r cubed, etc. So this theory would say that uh, the dividend, th that Berkshire Hathaway has value only because they, investors expect them to pay dividends in the future. And that, that sounds right, because if Berkshire Hathaway is never going to pay dividends, why would you hold it? <laughs> you might say, I'll hold it because I could sell to someone else at a higher price. Uh, but then you say, well, why would anyone else buy it? Look, if they're never going to pay a dividend, what good is it? It's just a piece of paper. right? Unle it, it, unless I can sell to a greater fool. But it, anyone who buys it, is it is either uh, would be buying it either on the assumption that there's some greater fool coming, or they would be um, the fool, a fool themselves. So this theory uh, says that the value, if, if Warren Buffett, of course he can't even say this, but let's somehow say the company could say, we will never pay a dividend. This company is going to give it away to charity someday, and you won't get a penny as a stockholder. Well, if that happened, the price should be zero. It would convert into a nonprofit like Yale University. So, what's the price of a share in Yale University? I mean, it's undefined. I, I guess it's zero, right? Because Yale is not paying. I'll, I'll, write, I'll write a piece of paper for you and say this is a share <laughs> on my, my authority. This is a share in Yale University. Um, and it might just as well be that because it also says in my fine print, you will never get a dividend on this. So, what's the point, right? Uh, so, uh, Incidentally, Microsoft for many years never paid a dividend. It's often common uh, for, for young companies not to pay dividends, but they did start paying a dividend. And uh, the whole theory, efficient markets theory, says that that's, what's, uh, that's what people are looking for. So that, that's why the, f the, the value of a company is related to its activities. Otherwise, if, if, if the company never paid a dividend, then what would you care what the company is doing? You only care about it because someday they're going to give you money. Uh, a lot of investors forget that. Th that's a very naive thing, attitude. They think that somehow stocks generate capital gains, prices go up. But you have to realize, and efficient markets theory is saying this, that prices only go up because there's new information about future dividends. Um, okay. So, um, so first financial, anyway. Uh, it, this is an efficient market story. First Financial had a low P.E., and so people were wondering, is this a bargain? This is a cheap stock. P.E. means price-earnings ratio. Um, 
And uh, the Business Week article pointed out that uh, 40 percent of First Federal had been sold short. 40 percent of their stock had been sold short. This is a very high level of short interest. Do you know what that means? That means a lot of investors said, uh, I don't uh, like First <laughs> Fed Financial. I don't want to invest in it. Worse than that, I want to go and short them. So that means you borrow shares and sell them and hope that the price goes down. When you have 40 percent of the shares sold short, that means that there's a lot of people who didn't believe in First Fed Financial. So Business Week in its article pointed out that uh, this First Fed Financial was a, a small mortgage lender. This is the before the mortgage crisis that we're in started in Santa Monica, California, uh, and that it was particularly uh, innovative in a sense in its lending. Notably, 80 percent, according to the Business Week article, 80 percent of the mortgages it's issued were no-doc mortgages. And you know the no-doc mortgage? It's something that appeared recently in the housing frenzy. A no-doc mortgage is a mortgage where you walk in and say, I want to borrow money to buy this house, and the company says, fine, we'll give you a mortgage. We won't even ask you to send a, uh, have your employer send a letter saying that you have a job. We won't even ask you to prove that you own anything or have. We'll just give you the mortgage. Uh, that's considered by many people risky behavior, but it was done during the housing boom. Also, they, they issued uh, an unusually high proportion of what are called option arms. These are mortgages that are adjustable rate, but also the, uh, the, the person doesn't have to pay the full payment every time. You have the option of paying, and if you don't want to pay, you can delay it for a while. And these are also controversial because it thought they would attract borrowers who were unreliable. Um, borrowers who thought that they could afford the house because they didn't have to pay now. But of course, it's all going to come later, and then they might default. So Business Week thought that the low price earnings ratio was because the market expected earnings to go down uh, and dividends to go down. So I, a year later, uh, that is this morning, I wanted to see what first. Fed Financial is doing. Uh, and actually, it's still in business. <laughs> Everything's all right. It has positive earnings. Uh, but its price, uh, the price was um, $70 uh, in um, to the beginning of 2007, and now it's down to about $40, uh, 2008. So uh, this is a testimony to efficient markets. Uh, the market uh, was expecting the price-earnings ratio. They gave it a low P.E. because they were worried about, they had information that there was something going badly uh, in this company. And indeed, they were right. Uh, it, uh, you know, it's not as bad as you might have thought with the Business Week story, but it is bad. So uh, uh, I guess the lesson, do you, are you following what I'm talking? So what happened was they did get into trouble. Uh, the, um, uh, the low P.E was indeed a forecaster of, of, uh, of bad uh, performance later. Uh, but um, uh, so um, now I guess this isn't exactly effic efficient markets wouldn't in this case, the, the people who sold first fed financial short made a lot of money uh, when the price went down so much. That's not really 
consistent with efficient markets because it makes it sound like, I, uh, as a matter of fact, I could have bought, I could have reading the Business Week article at the beginning of 2007, I could have called my broker and I could have told my broker, uh, short, please, uh, I want a short first Fed financial, and I could have done that. And it looks like I made a lot of money right, by shorting it because the price went down a lot. Efficient markets theory uh, would, would have to say uh, that that was an anomaly, that that was just good luck. Those people who shorted first Fed financial did make a lot of money, but hey, they were just lucky this time. In other words, efficient markets theory would say that the price was already down as far as it was, you know, basically as far as it would go in 2007, and that earnings would fall. Uh, and dividends would fall later, and that would explain why the price was low, but it wouldn't allow you to predict the price. So this and this anomaly, uh, 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 the, the, the the fact that it worked out so well, is really not to, to short investors uh, is really not testimony to efficient markets. Um, uh, so efficient market, you know, in some sense, I think. I, I'm sympathetic to efficient markets. We have to be sympathetic to some extent. If I were trying, you know, I actually did not short First Fed Financial when I read this last year, and it was because I guess I had my doubt. You know, I had my feeling. You read a Business Week article, you know, and it's a, it's everyone in the world knows it now that a lot of people doubt First Fed Financial. So if I come in late as a short seller, am I going to do well? You know, I start to doubt it myself because there's so many people looking at it, and so many people who are more knowledgeable about first Fed financial than I am. So you know, maybe I won't try shorting it, uh, and that, that's what efficient markets is all about. Um, so uh, the efficient markets theory became very popular in finance uh, in about um, about uh, w w when uh, around 1970, and it became a um, uh, a prominent theory in finance. Uh, it, it has a particular incarnation that I wanted to emphasize uh, called random walk. Uh, and so the random walk theory, uh, which follows loosely from this formula, though I have to uh, qualify it, but let me talk about random walk as uh, a theory in itself. Uh, the random walk theory. Uh, says that under efficient markets, stock prices and other uh, speculative asset prices are random walks. And that term goes back to Carl Pearson uh, in an article in Nature in 1905. So this idea is about, uh, about 100 years old. Uh, and what uh, uh, Pearson wrote about was, uh, well, the example he gave was a drunk. <laughs> Imagine a person who is so drunk that every step that person takes is random and independent of the preceding step. Okay, and so suppose we—this uh, is 1905 story. Suppose we had uh, a lamp post and we had a drunk standing at the lamp post. I've drawn, I've drawn a picture. That's a lamp post and that's a drunk. This person is so intoxicated. That steps are completely random, and your object is to predict where will this person be in one minute, in ten minutes, and twenty minutes. Okay. Well, Pearson wrote about this and said that the optimal prediction is to uh, 
assume that uh, the person in 10 minutes, the best forecast is the person will be here. In, 10, in 20 minutes, what's the best forecast? The person will be here. Of course, they probably won't because they're randomly staggering around. But the point is that if it's a true random walk, there's no bias. It's equally likely to go this way or this way. The most likely place for the person is right where that person is now. And so uh, Pearson and other people following him thought that speculative prices are like that. That's, that sounds like the markets are crazy. They're drunk, but they're not drunk. It's, it's, it's because they respond only to new information. And so new information is by its essence unforecastable. And so it has to look like the market is driven by a drunk when in fact it's, it's very precise and responding optimally to new information. So that's one of the paradoxes that confuses people. Uh, so you know, statisticians develop the theory of a random walk. Let, let me define it for you. A random walk occurs when you have uh, a, vari a, um, a variable x at time t is equal to x at time t minus 1 plus epsilon sub t, where epsilon sub t is noise, unforecastable noise. Okay? So this is the random walk. x would be here, how far the person is from the lamppost. Here's 0, let's say. Okay? And x is the distance from the lamppost. So at every time interval, we have x sub t, which is how far the drunk has deviated from the lamppost. This is the random step. This is where the drunk was last period, and where this is where the drunk is this period. Okay, so that's a random walk. Uh, and the, the, uh, in the heyday of efficient markets theory, people said that efficient markets is working very well. In other words, the random walk uh, hypothesis of uh, describes stock prices very well. So let me go to my spreadsheet, which I have up here. Um, and uh, uh, I'll put this spreadsheet up on the web for you. Uh, what I have here is shown, uh, there's two lines shown. One is a blue line, uh, which is um, the, uh, the, bl the blue line is the actual standard and poor composite stock price index uh, going back to 1871. This is a series that I, well, actually, it got this series from Standard and Poor's. Uh, and I, I emphasize it a lot in my book. It's a 130-year-long uh, stock price series, mon monthly, for the United States. It's now called the S&P 500 um, because starting in 1957, Standard and Poor's, well, they kind of reorganized the index and they kept uh, it at 500 stocks. So this is the second most famous stock price index after the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Uh, but I think it's better than the Dow Jones Industrial Average because the Dow has only 30 stocks, and this has 500. It's representative of most of the market. So that's history. That blue, that blue line there is history, okay? Uh, now what I did on uh, Excel is I, um, I generated a random walk, because there's a random number generator on Excel. And I used the random number generator and plugged it into this formula, uh, x sub t equals x sub t minus 1 plus epsilon sub t. And that pink line is a true random walk. It was generated by a random number generator. 
Okay, and the point here is, don't they look kind of similar? Okay, uh, when you look at uh, when people look at stock prices, they get a, a, an it's an illusion. This is a psychological illusion. They get the sense that uh, there are bull markets when the market is going up, and there are bear markets when the market is going down. There must be some force pushing it up for a while. Um, but uh, so you can see, for example, I'm looking at the blue line. There was a bull market in the 1920s, a famous bull market, right? The Roaring Twenties. Uh, and so you would say that can't just be a random walk. It was just going up all the time. And then this is the 1929 peak. And look, there's the crash from 1929 to 1932. Big crash. That can't be a random walk, right? That's what people think. They have this intuitive idea. But if you look, this random walk seems to do the same thing. The pink line. Uh, has uh, look. There's a nice bull market there. There's another crash. Look at look at this whole period here. This was really strong, and then it leveled out. We had bad. In fact, they kind of look similar, don't they? This is pure chance because that random walk that I generated was pure random walk. But the, there's the bull, the actual bull market of the 1950s and 60s, and my random walk comes out pretty close to that. So the, the random walk theorist says that people are operating under illusions that there really is no trends or uh, there's no way to predict the market. It is just completely unforecastable. Now, incidentally, the uh, nice thing about Excel is I can generate a new random walk for you on the spot by pressing F9, if you know that key on, on Excel. So I will press F9, and history is going to stay the same. The blue line is going to stay the same, but the pink line is going to change. And I'm going to I can generate whole hundred-year history, pseudo-histories with the press of a button. So let's see if this works. Okay, we just got. What is that saying? Okay, I, I put an upward trend to the uh, random walk there uh, because I think there's an uptrend to the stock market. So it's a little different than this. I just added a time trend. Otherwise, it's exactly that random walk formula that I use. Okay, um, that looks pretty much like history too, except we would be in a bear market. <laughs> for, for quite a while, right? We have quite a bear market in the pink line. But I can correct that by pressing F9 again. Oops. <laughs> well, uh, this is bad luck. Uh, the stock market crashed uh, in the it went off the chart uh, here. Uh, that's bad luck. But I can try again. Oh, look at that one. Isn't that beauty? That almost. Uh, that almost. Uh, well, it really, it really looks like the market we've had. Um, so I can just go. It's just amazing how fast this thing generates. Look at that. that. <laughs> Whoops! I should stop. Tell me when one looks really interesting. Well, that's an interesting one. That's that's. If that if that was the history that we randomly had, Jeremy Siegel would write uh, not just stocks for the long run. He would be. Jubilant, <laughs> the returns on stocks. He would say, for a hundred years, this is a, this is 130 years. For 130 years, stocks have wonderfully outperformed the market, out outperformed uh, other things. Because that 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 is looking pretty good, isn't it? And I just press the button and get. I'm not getting many bad ones. That's why I have an uptrend in it. Uh, but they all look similar, right? Now the other thing I wanted to talk about was a uh, another thing called a AR1, which is a different story. Uh, and the AR1 uh, 
This is the random walk here. The other idea is that uh, let me do it intuitively first. I'm going to tie an elastic cord around the dr ankle of the drunk, okay, and tie it to the lamp pole. And okay, can you see my elastic cord? It's very loose at beginning, so uh, the drunk can move freely. But if 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 it starts to get stretchy when the drunk makes it all the way over here, then it's really hard for it's pulling the drunk back, okay. So that means it biases the drunk back. Towards the uh, starting point, um, and that's called a AR1 or first order autoregressive. Um, model, and so that means that uh, there's something. The random walk has no center. It just has a starting point. It doesn't tend to go back anywhere. But here we have a center. Uh, what do I call that? I'll call it uh, x bar is this point here, not necessarily 0. And it says that x sub t minus x bar is equal to x bar plus rho times x sub t minus 1 minus x bar plus epsilon sub t. Okay, and rho, uh, uh, rho lies between minus 1 and plus 1. Usually it's positive. All right, you, you see that? So rho is, uh, the smaller rho is, the tighter the elastic cord is. So um, it, it, it gets pulled back by 1 minus rho of the way back to the x bar in every time period. But then there's new noise that adds on to it. If there were no new noise, then the, the drunk would, would just be gradually pulled back. But, uh, but there's new noise, and so the, the, uh, the drunk is not so uh, uh, the drunk is not so predictable. Okay, so that's another model of the stock market, but it's not an efficient markets model. Uh, the random walk is efficient markets model that says you can't profit by trading because you just cannot predict the change in price. But with the first order autoregressive, you can predict the change of price at least a little bit. Or, or, well, when it's when when what goes up comes down. If the if the drunk is over here, it tends to get pulled back here. If the drunk is over here, it tends to get pulled back up. And so that's the random walk model. So I program into this program uh, an AR1. So I go down here and click on it. That looks very different, doesn't it? Maybe I didn't get the parameters exactly right. But let me just hit F9. I'll, I'll get it so it looks better. Well, it looks a little different, right? You, you see a difference in this? That's because I, I chose rho equals 0.95 for that diagram. So it's kind of getting tugged back to the trend. Um, but it, sometimes it's hard to tell. I mean, I, I thought, can you tell the difference between a random walk and an AR1? It seems to be coming back faster. So uh, that, <laughs> that looks different. Well, with rho equal 0.95, I guess it, it does look noticeably different, right? Because um, it's coming back pretty fast. I, I have 130 years observations, and it's coming back 5% of the way every year. So in five years, it's 25% of the way back. I've got the cord too tight. 
So it's not fooling you, right? You can see a difference between this, random, this AR1 and the true stock market. The stock, so this is revealing some truth to the efficient markets hypothesis. But what if I made rho equal 0.99? Then I think I should have done that instead of 0.95. Then it gets harder for you to see the difference. And if I make rho equals 1 in this, what happens if I plug rho equals 1 into this expression? It comes back to the random walk, right? Because the x bars drop out. Because you've got 1 times x bar, and you've got minus x bar over here. So they drop out of the equation, and you come back up here. So a random walk is just a AR1 with a coefficient of uh, rho of 1. Uh, now, the, the point is then that uh, we can easily see that the stock market is not strongly mean reverting or trend reverting, but it's somewhat, it may be somewhat trend reverting. It's very hard to tell whether its rho is 1 or 0.99. And so that's, that's the point of, of my little analysis here uh, of random walk versus AR1. So, uh, Okay. Now, uh, the, the homework, the problem set uh, that you will have uh, next time. Now, you still haven't turned in your second problem set, but I want to work ahead now to the, to the third one. What I want you to do is to try forecasting the stock market. Uh, and so let me show you what I did here. Uh, and I want you to do something. You could use this spreadsheet, but I'm also uh, encouraging you to find your own data. So here is my spreadsheet. Uh, which uh, uh, has stock prices back to 1871. Can you see all this? Uh, I have this on my website all the time. I've had it on my website um, how long? It must be 20 years. I've, I've been just <laughs> I give it away <laughs> because I, I'm the person who updates S&P data uh, for uh, 1871 to the present. And S&P, I now have a, a relationship with S&P because they're publishing our indices, but they still don't provide updates of this 100-year-long series. So here it is, uh, all the way back to 1871. So what do I have here? Uh, uh, I have in column one is the, S the Standard & Poor Composite Stock Price Index, today called the S&P 500. Okay? This is the dividend on the S&P 500. They've been paying a dividend. Consistently, it's never missed a year. <laughs> Maybe some companies have missed a year, like Berkshire Hathaway or Microsoft, but the, but the whole aggregate has never missed a year. This is the earnings reported on the companies. All right? It's all per share, all right? So this is uh, per share earnings. Uh, and I have here the consumer price index in this column. Okay? And then uh, and I've got long-term interest rate. And I, com I com converted it to a real price. Uh, by dividing by the consumer price index. Uh, and this is the change in the real price. Okay, I don't, it's, it's between this year and the next year. And so uh, what I wanted to do uh, is, this is your homework assignment, and maybe I'll come back to this, or maybe your TAs will come back to it as well. I want you to try to forecast the stock market. Okay? Uh, and so that means, but remember what you're trying to forecast. You're trying to forecast epsilon. You're not trying to forecast X. We already know X is easy to forecast. It's close to what it was last period. The, the, the hard thing is to predict where the next change will be. So I had to generate a column of data here, uh, which is the um, 
um, which is the change in the price. So you see up here, uh, it says uh, J10 minus J9 uh, is the change in the price. That's what you want to try to forecast. All right? And so um, uh, I created this column going all the way back to uh, 1871, showing for each year how much the uh, S&P composite index in real terms changed. I did it in logs. I took the change in the log of real price. So that's the, like essentially the percentage change. That is going to be hard to forecast. Obviously, it's going to be hard to forecast because there's some truth to the efficient markets hypothesis. If that were easy to forecast, you could have been rich <laughs> over this period. Somebody could have been rich. It can't be that easy. Uh, nonetheless, the problem set for you is to try to do that, to try to forecast it. So what you have to do is go to regression analysis, and you don't have to use Excel, but that's just what I'm suggesting here because that's the easiest thing. So to run a regression, uh, you go up to Tools, uh, and uh, let me see, Data. Oops, Data Analysis. Can't even find it. It's down here. Uh, and then you go to Regression. Uh, I guess I have to say OK. And then it asks you to fit, fill in your uh, X range and your Y range. So the X variable is the, remember the regression model uh, is, um, it's um, Y equals alpha plus beta X plus some error term, epsilon or U. I know I'll call it U so we don't get mixed up. All right, so it's asking you to say where your y variable is, uh, and I've got that that my y variable is in column uh, k, right? Because that's what I've generated. That's the change. Uh, in uh, where is k? Oh wait, I've lost it. I can't. It's not column k. It's uh, I don't know if I can do it. It's uh, I'm trying to find it here. It's column I, isn't it? To move this. That's the change in price. Uh, and then the X variable, I can pick some variable to forecast. What I did is I just took column A, which is time. It's just the year. Uh, and I ran the regression uh, since 1950, and I got the results here, uh, right here. Oops, let's get rid of it. I'm just going to show you the results from what regression I ran. That's how uh, Excel prints out regression results. Uh, and uh, the, alpha, the alpha, which is the intercept, is um, it's shown here. So the intercept was 0.05. The beta uh, is uh, the coefficient of the variable is minus 2 times 10 to the minus fifth power. Uh, you can see now I've struck out. <laughs> it doesn't like time as a forecast. It's a very small coefficient. Uh, the T statistic is a measure of statistical significance, and the T statistic should probably be over two for statistical significance. And uh, I've got insignificant T statistics for both alpha and for betas. So um, the R squared is a measure of what fraction of 
the dependent variable y's variance I have predicted. And so it comes out with a fraction of 0.000147. All right? This is not a success, this is not a get rich quick story because uh, I'm explaining uh, one ten thousandth of the variance of the stock market. So uh, I, f I struck out. Okay? <laughs> I wasn't really trying that hard, I just regressed the returns on time. Uh, so the problem set for you is to uh, think about uh, seeing if you can forecast the market. Uh, you don't have to use my data set, you can use others. Uh, and uh, you can go online and find them. For example, finance.yahoo.com has a lot of indexes, uh, but you can find them on other sites. Um, so if you find some other data and you can try to see if you can beat me, I'm not setting up a very high standard for success. <laughs> uh, if it were this bad, efficient markets, well, this looks good for efficient markets theory. So, um, uh, uh, so that, but, um, What I thought you might do for the problem set is to try to think creatively about how to forecast the market. And let me say this: uh, I'm not. Uh, I, I'm going to have to go continue with uh, my doubts about efficient markets in another lecture. But uh, I, I think that the story has a good element of truth to it. It has to be hard to beat the market, but it's oversold as well, especially in academic circles. I think us professors. Who are poor, uh, are, you know, it's kind of a wishful thinking bias. We're not making much money, and you, you can't anyway. Uh, and so uh, we kind of over, tend to overstate efficient markets hypothesis. On the other hand, relative to your expectations as naive young people, uh, it may be a good thing to do to overstate efficient markets hypothesis. There seems to be a, a life cycle effect where young people think, I can surely predict the market. Uh, and then they get beaten down. Um, uh, Brad Barber and Terry O'Dean, who are professors uh, at UC at different campuses of California, teamed up with some uh, economists from uh, Taiwan uh, and looked at data of, they got really good data from Taiwan about day traders uh, and their actual returns. That day traders are people who trade every day in the markets. Uh, and they found that there was a really predictable pattern. The young people, they start in as a day trader, uh, and they quickly lose everything. <laughs> and they, they lose badly because they're trading too much and they really can't predict the market. There's like 1% of them, though, who seem like they can actually beat the market. This looks like really good for efficient markets. Uh, but they found that there are some Taiwanese people who know how to beat the market. 1% survives and stays in. So is that contrary to efficient markets? Well, it does seem contrary because they found a small number of people did find some forecasting rule and succeeded. On the other hand, none of the, uh, hardly any of them got really rich, and so it's very rare. Warren Buffett is an extremely rare outcome, and so it's. I guess when I talk about efficient markets, I want to uh, help prevent you uh, from suffering under any delusions about your forecasting ability. But I don't mean that Warren Buffett can't do it. Or that you can't do it if you develop yourself into a Warren Buffett. So the the the, the next pro the problem set number three asks you to think creatively about how you would forecast the market and to 
take a stab at it by running a regression. And I expect you all to fail, or almost all of you to fail. Your grade will not depend on your success in forecast. It may even depend inversely, because if you show a big success in forecasting, your teaching assistant will look at it very carefully and try to find some mistake you made, because if you do succeed, uh, it's probably a mistake. Uh, on the other hand, I don't want to tell you that you can't, because as I said, we're going to come back to this, but I have doubts about efficient markets, and I think that you just might be able to do it if you're smart about it. 